Hey everyone, so a YouTube viewer requested that I do an episode on aliens, in particular the so-called greys. It was actually the same viewer that requested that I do a follow-up to my Baphomet documentary, which I did and I quite enjoyed making, so grey aliens this time. Why not? Let's do it. And I just want to say up front that this probably isn't going to be a super deep dive on the subject of aliens or grey specifically. It's meant to just be a relatively brief overview. So I guess I'll start by giving my personal take on the possibility of alien life in general. I think just given the vastness of the universe and how relatively common the ingredients for life probably are, that most likely there is life elsewhere. But how much of it might be advanced enough to achieve civilization or even space travel, that's another question. My guess is that if there is life out there, and once again I think there probably is, that the majority of it is probably most likely primitive or microbial. And if there are other civilizations out there, a question which we will touch on, even if they're far more advanced than us, they could be so far away that there still might be certain scientific or technological limitations keeping them from reaching us. And this probably isn't a fun way to start our journey here, but I personally am doubtful that we've been visited, but I try to stay open-minded and I don't completely rule it out. And I know there's been a lot of buzz about UFOs in the news lately, but I haven't been keeping up, so I don't know if there's been any compelling developments. Feel free to let me know in the comments section of the YouTube version of this episode, or even on Twitter, or possibly in a message on the Weekend Out Facebook page. But as promised a moment ago, let's get back to the subject of the possibility of other civilizations or intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. There's something called the Drake Equation, which I've mentioned on the show before. Frank Drake, who passed away in September of 2022 at the age of 92, was an American astrophysicist and astrobiologist. He had been involved in the search for extraterrestrial life or SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, for decades, I believe over half a century. He started out as a radio astronomer, and in 1960 began Project Ozma, named after the fictional princess of the Land of Oz. The goal of the project was to attempt to detect signals of life in distant solar systems using interstellar radio waves. A year later, in 1961, Drake formulated the aptly named Drake Equation, a probabilistic argument used to estimate the number of active, communicative extraterrestrial civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy. Apparently, the equation was meant more to stimulate scientific discussion at the first SETI meeting than as a serious attempt to determine a precise number. And I have a quote from Frank Drake himself here. As I planned the meeting, I realized a few days ahead of time we needed an agenda, and so wrote down all the things you needed to know to predict how hard it's going to be to detect extraterrestrial life. And looking at them, it became pretty evident that if you multiplied all these together, you got a number, N, which is the number of detectable civilizations in our galaxy. 
This was aimed at the radio search, and not to search for primordial or primitive life forms. Despite the fact the equation was meant more to stimulate dialogue than to actually yield a precise number, some have still criticized it for its apparent flaws, such as some of the values in the equation being too conjectural. Speaking of which, I'll quickly list the values in the Drake equation. Hey everyone, I'm back through the magic of editing to let you know I slipped up and left out a very important value of the Drake equation, r, the rate of star formation in the galaxy. And please keep in mind that, once again, the goal of the equation is to solve for or discover n, the number of technologically advanced civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy. But let's now continue with the list of values. So we have fp, the fraction of those stars with planetary systems, ne, the number of planets per solar system with an environment suitable for life, fl, the fraction of suitable planets on which life actually appears, fi, the fraction of life-bearing planets on which intelligent life emerges, fc, the fraction of civilizations that develop a technology that releases detectable signs of their existence into space. L, the length of time such civilizations release detectable signals into space. Others have tinkered with the equation, seeking to fine-tune the values for more accurate results. In 2020, a paper by scholars at the University of Nottingham proposed an quote-unquote astrobiological Copernican principle based on the so-called principle of mediocrity. They speculated that, and in quotes once again, intelligent life would form on other Earth-like planets like it has on Earth, so within a few billion years, life would automatically form as a natural part of evolution. The authors of the paper set the values FL, FI, and FC to a probability of 1. According to their calculations, there supposedly could currently be more than 30 technological civilizations in the galaxy. Not sure how accurate their prediction is, but if that's true, that would be absolutely amazing to say the least. I hope it's accurate. And I'll read a bit from this article from NASA, to be precise, exoplanets.nasa.gov. Are we alone in the universe revisiting the Drake equation? And for context, this is dated May 19th, 2016, and it's by Lenore Sierra, University of Rochester. And so it begins, are humans unique and alone in the vast universe? This question, summed up in the famous Drake equation, has for half a century been one of the most intractable and uncertain in science. But a new paper shows that recent discoveries, yeah, or the recent discoveries of exoplanets, combined with a broader approach to the question, makes it possible to assign a new empirically valid probability to whether any other advanced technological civilizations have ever existed. And it shows that unless the odds of advanced life evolving on a habitable planet are astonishingly low, then humankind is not the universe's first technological or advanced civilization. 
And I'll skip down a bit. The question of whether advanced civilizations exist elsewhere in the universe has always been vexed with three large uncertainties in the Drake Equation, said Adam Frank, professor of physics and astronomy at the University of Rochester and co-author of the paper, and here's a quote, We've known for a long time approximately how many stars exist. We didn't know how many of those stars had planets that could potentially harbor life, how often life might evolve and lead to intelligent beings, and how long any civilizations might last before becoming extinct. And I think that was another thing I used to hear scientists talk about a lot, that there's probably a kind of cycle that when a civilization becomes quote-unquote too advanced, they may ultimately destroy themselves via nuclear warfare, etc. But I'll return to the article. Of course, we have no idea how likely it is that an intelligent technological species will evolve on any given habitable planet, says Frank. But using our method, we can tell exactly how low that probability would, would have to be for us to be the only civilization the universe has produced. We call that the pessimism line. If the actual probability is greater than the pessimism line, then a technological species and civilization has likely happened before. Using this approach, Frank and Sullivan calculate how unlikely advanced life must be if there has never been another example among the universe's 10 billion trillion stars, or even among our own Milky Way galaxy's 100 billion. And here's a quote from Sullivan, Woodruff Sullivan, University of Washington. Rather than asking how many civilizations may exist now, we ask, are we the only technological species that has ever arisen? The result? By applying the new exoplanet data to the universe's 2 times 10 to the 22nd power stars, Frank and Sullivan find that human civilization is likely to be unique in the cosmos only if the odds of a civilization developing on a habitable planet are less than about 1 in 10 billion trillion, or 1 part in 10 to the 22nd power. And here's a quote, 1 in 10 billion trillion is incredibly small, says Frank. To me, this implies that other intelligent, technology-producing species very likely have evolved before us. Think of it this way, before our result, you'd be considered a pessimist. If you imagine the probability of evolving a civilization on a habitable planet were, say, 1 in a trillion, but even that guess, 1 chance in a trillion, implies that what has happened here on Earth with humanity has in fact happened about 10 billion other times over cosmic history. For smaller volumes, the numbers are less extreme. For example, another technological species likely has evolved on a habitable planet in our own Milky Way galaxy if the odds against it evolving on any one habitable planet are better than one chance in 60 billion. But if those numbers seem to give ammunition to the quote-unquote optimists about the existence of alien civilizations, Sullivan points out that the full Drake equation, which calculates the odds that other civilizations are around today, may give solace to the pessimists. And I'll jump down a bit once again, and so here it says... 
1961, astrophysicist Frank Drake developed an equation to estimate the number of advanced civilizations likely to exist in the Milky Way galaxy. The Drake equation has proven to be a durable framework for research, and space technology has advanced scientists' knowledge of several variables, but it is impossible to do anything more than guess at variables such as L, and it says the probably, but it probably means the probable longevity of other advanced civilizations. In new research, Adam Frank and Woodruff Sullivan offer a new equation to address a slightly different question. What is the number of advanced civilizations likely to have developed over the history of the observable universe? Frank and Sullivan's equation draws on Drake's, but eliminates the need for L. Their argument hinges upon the recent discovery of how many planets exist and how many of those lie in what scientists call the quote-unquote habitable zone. Planets in which liquid water and therefore life could exist. This allows Frank and Sullivan to define a number they call and it looks like... N, and then AST, and the AST is small and at the bottom, and I'm trying to remember the rules of scientific notation. If the smaller terms or notation is down the bottom in a smaller font, that's subscript, right? And if it's up above, it's superscript. So it'd be N subscript AST, and I think it might be referred to as NAST for short. NAST is the product of N, the total number of stars, FP, the fraction of those stars that form planets, and NP, the average number of those planets in the habitable zones of their stars. And then I'll jump down to another quote from Sullivan. The universe is more than 13 billion years old, said Sullivan. That means that even if there have been a thousand civilizations in our own galaxy, if they live only as long as we have been around, roughly 10,000 years, then all of them are likely already extinct, and others won't evolve until we are long gone. And when he says we've been around for roughly 10,000 years, I take it he's referring to human civilization specifically, and not our species, Homo sapiens. Uh, I believe it's thought we've been around for at least 250,000 years, and I think more recent estimates may even imply that we've been around significantly longer, but I think it depends on who you ask, etc., but I'll continue reading. For us to have much chance of success in finding another, in quotes, contemporary, active technological civilization, on average they must last much longer than our present lifetime. Given the vast distances between stars and the fixed speed of light, we might never really be able to have a conversation with another civilization anyway, said Frank. If they were 20,000 light years away, then every exchange would take 40,000 years to go back and forth. But as Frank and Sullivan point out, even if there aren't other civilizations in our galaxy to communicate with now, the result still has a profound scientific and philosophical importance. And here's another quote. From a fundamental perspective, the question is, has it ever happened anywhere before, said Frank. Our result is the first time anyone has been able to set any empirical answer for that question, and it is astonishingly likely that we are not the only time and place that an advanced civilization has evolved. 
So it seems like the takeaway is it's almost certain that other advanced civilizations have existed elsewhere in the universe, which is incredibly exciting. Uh, but the bad news is they're probably dead. <laughs> and uh, who knows, maybe we still might stumble upon a petrified space jockey and may maybe some xenomorphs. Kidding, just a pop culture reference. I'm an uh, Aliens fan. Um, anyway, that still is incredible to think about, though. I can remember there was a time where, where if you even implied that there might be life elsewhere, you'd be looked at like a kook or like you had two heads. Now it's pretty much the scientific consensus. And just because there might not be any extant advanced civilizations in our relative vicinity, that doesn't mean that there still might not be other kinds of life out there, whether it be relatively primitive. I'd be very surprised that at some point we don't run into some microbes out there or something like that. I think I recently read a news story about how we may have inadvertently wiped out or destroyed evidence of microbes that may have been encountered on Mars, I think it was. Uh, don't hold me to that. And I think it was considered a kind of controversial opinion, but it was still an eye-catching and thought-provoking article. Uh, yeah, let me see. Live science. NASA may have unknowingly found and killed alien life on Mars 50 years ago, scientists claims. One researcher hypothesizes that experiments carried out by NASA's Viking landers in 1976 could have inadvertently killed microbes living in Martian rocks. And that article is from just five days ago. And maybe I inadvertently lied, and this is going to be a deep dive. We're almost 17 minutes in. Uh, anyway, let's get back to Frank Drake for a bit. Uh, Frank Drake, along with Carl Sagan and Sagan's then-wife, helped design the so-called Pioneer plaque, a gold-anodized aluminum plaque bearing a pictorial message that was placed on the Pioneer 10 spacecraft in 1972 in case the craft should by chance be intercepted by intelligent life. Another similar plaque would be placed on the Pioneer 11 a year later. And I believe it was initially the aforementioned Project Ozma that brought Drake to Sagan's attention while Sagan was still a graduate student. The two would embark on what was more or less a lifelong collaboration. Sagan sadly passed in 1996, and a branch of the SETI Institute, the Carl Sagan Center, was named in his honor, and Frank Drake served as its director until 2010. One thing that jumped out at me while I was researching this episode, and it always surprises and amuses me, when elements of some of my other weirder or more esoteric interests manage to unexpectedly pop up. I don't believe in the supernatural, but I still enjoy or am drawn to supernatural topics and things like the occult. And it turns out that early on, Frank Drake worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, which was founded in part by Jack Parsons, a brilliant rocket scientist and also a Thelemite occultist. And Thelemite refers to Thelema, the magical or occult system created by notorious British occultist Alistair Crowley, who I did an epically long episode or documentary on, which you can 
find on YouTube. And back in the day, Jack Parsons was friends with L. Ron Hubbard. This was prior to Hubbard's founding of Scientology, and I believe at the time Hubbard was also interested in the occult and or Crowley. So weird world we live in. But let's finally move on to the Greys. We're probably all familiar with the Grey alien archetype. The diminutive, although some are sometimes described as tall, uh, beings with thin, almost childlike bodies, contrasted with large oversized heads, grayish skin and large dark almond-shaped eyes, and they're also usually depicted with a lack of external physical characteristics. Mere slits for nostrils and a mouth, often no ears or any noticeable reproductive organs. And they, or aliens fitting that description, have been depicted in everything from Close Encounters of the Third Kind to The X-Files and Stargate. There's even comedic depictions. I think Roger from American Dad is based on the popular gray alien image, along with E.T. perhaps, judging by his lower body. And an interesting thing to note is that the look of the Japanese protagonist, Ultraman, was inspired by or based on the look of a gray alien as well. I remember being a little kid, and a local channel in the Boston area hosted something called Creature Double Feature, and often they'd play Japanese monster or sci-fi movies, including entries from the Ultraman and Godzilla franchises. But where did this classic depiction or concept of the gray alien come from? Some trace it back in part to late 19th century fiction. There's an 1891 novel entitled Mida or Meda, A Tale of the Future. It was written by a man named Kenneth Fallingsby. And I kept running into the claim online that supposedly, in the book, the author describes grayish alien beings with balloon-shaped heads. I wanted to see what the text actually said for myself, so I hunted down a PDF copy. And I searched the PDF file for the word balloon, and I got a couple of results, but nothing specifically describing the aliens' heads as balloon-shaped but I did find the following passages. Their eyes had a bright, far-seeing look, wistful and dreamy withal, pale gray in color and very prominent. There was a sad, thoughtful look on their faces that made me feel that nothing I could say would induce them to laugh. The features were marked and the skin was clear almost to transparency. Judging from the baldness of their heads and the solemnity of their mien, I would have said they were about 70 years old, but judging from their limbs and the appearance of their skin, I would have guessed their age at 20 to 25. In fact, they were very grave, diminutive, young old men of some new type of humanity unknown to my experience. And then I found another description of a couple uh, of beings. I carefully scrutinized this odd-looking couple. They were not more than four feet high, with very large heads and small bodies and limbs. That portion of the body which contains the principal organs of digestion seemed to be almost entirely a-wanting, but their chests were more than fairly well-developed. For clothing, they wore a wrapping of white silky material. 
bound closely round the body and forming a kind of kilt around the upper portions of their limbs. On their feet they had light shoes and to each ankle was secured a circular weight of considerable size, formed of a metal which looked like newly scraped lead. Each weight was in two pieces bound together by a silken cord, led into a circular recess near the top. On their heads there was no covering, and the little hair they had was fine in texture, and of a dark brown color. It formed a slight fringe from the temples round the back of the head, and when viewed from the head behind, strongly resembled an egg in a brown-edged egg cup. And that was kind of oddly worded, that final bit there. And I don't know if they're saying that the being's head as a whole resembled a kind of upside-down egg in an egg cup. So something like a balloon or the typical oversized head of the uh, archetypal gray. And other than browsing the PDF, I haven't read the story. But judging by the title and some of the text... I think it could be that the so-called aliens are actually supposed to be highly evolved humans from the future, which is another theory you sometimes hear concerning the greys. Usually they are thought of as being space aliens, but some speculate that they're highly evolved humans visiting from the future. And the reason why they have the oversized heads and slender bodies is because we, you know, had evolved to the point where we became hyper-intelligent, technologically advanced creatures with even bigger brains, so needing bigger heads, and no need to rely on physical brawn. And the lack of external sex organs could mean we no longer relied on traditional physical procreation. I'm not saying I necessarily believe any of this, I'm just relaying the, the idea or theories. I haven't listened to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast in a long time, but while I was doing my research for this episode, I came across a quote from one of the hosts, neurologist Stephen Novella, commenting on the idea that the gray alien archetype, or, you know, the stereotypical gray, might symbolize or embody some of our ideas or concepts about intelligence. He says in quotes, The aliens, however, do not just appear as humans. They appear like humans with those traits we psychologically associate with intelligence. I take it he's referring to the oversized heads, etc. But to get back on track, in 1893, science fiction author H.G. Wells published a satirical article in the Pall Mall Budget entitled The Man of the Year Million." The article and accompanying illustrations depict the highly evolved man of the future as having a giant head and hands, but a frail withered body, as well as a lack of external characteristics such as a nose or ears. Wells likened these strange future humans to the Martians of his fiction, and even slyly refers to his Man of the Year Million article in his famous work, War of the Worlds. The Eloi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, a successor species to humanity, were described similarly in another of Wells's famous works, The Time Machine. And now, believe it or not, as weird as it is, famed or infamous British occultist Aleister Crowley pops up yet again. In 1919, he used one of his own illustrations as the frontispiece for an article or essay he wrote, published in Volume 3, Number 1, I believe it is, 
of an occult magazine or periodical called the Equinox. And the Equinox served as a kind of vehicle or mouthpiece for the occult or secret organization or order Crowley founded known as the AA. And no, not Alcoholics Anonymous, a different AA. And the article he wrote was a kind of response or analysis of Madame Blavatsky, another famed occultist book, The Voice of Silence. Crowley's frontispiece illustration and frontispiece, and this is something I discussed in the first Baphomet documentary and perhaps the second, is just a fancy term for an illustration facing the title page of a book. Uh, but the frontispiece illustration was of a strange interdimensional entity named Lamb, L-A-M, that he claimed to have contacted during one of his magical workings or operations, specifically the Amalantra, I think it is, working. And Amalantra sounds like something you sprinkle in spaghetti sauce. But anyway, uh, apparently Lamb means something like the way in Tibetan, which makes sense given Crowley's interest in Eastern spirituality. He was also a renowned mountain climber. But Crowley depicted Lamb as having a large, bald, balloon-shaped head. And I bring up the mountain climbing because of Tibet. But anyway, no ears and, a small, and small facial features. So something similar in appearance to a so-called gray or one of the highly advanced or evolved beings from the pieces of 19th century fiction we discussed earlier. But where the grays are usually depicted as having large, dark, almond-shaped eyes, Lamb's eyes are small and narrow, more human-looking in appearance. I couldn't help but wonder if Crowley may have been influenced by those earlier depictions from 19th century fiction or if the similarity was just coincidence. Or perhaps, as somewhat suggested by Stephen Novella, this idea of a being with an oversized head may function as a kind of archetypal symbol of intelligence, which would make sense for Lamb, seeing as he was supposed to be a guide of sorts, or a source of intelligence and wisdom. Crowley's Lamb figure made its way into occult belief and ufology folklore, with others later claiming to have experienced their own lamb visitations. In 1933, a Swedish writer named Gustav Sandgren, I think it is, published a book entitled Den Okanda Faren, I probably butchered that, The Unknown Danger, in which he describes a race of alien beings, and here's a excerpt or quote. The creatures did not resemble any race of humans. They were short, shorter than the average Japanese, not sure if that's politically correct, different time, and their heads were big and bald, with strong square foreheads and very small noses and mouths, and weak chins. What was most extraordinary about them were their eyes, large, dark, gleaming with a sharp gaze. They wore clothes of soft gray fabric, and their limbs seemed to be similar to those of humans. And that seems to be yet another feature regarding reports of what we now refer to as greys. They're usually either described as having greyish skin, hence the name, or alternately they're sometimes described as wearing spacesuits or garments made of a grey fabric. But now we finally come to a landmark case that really helps cement the grey alien concept into popular culture and imagination the alleged alien abduction of Betty and Barney Hill. 
Betty and Barney Hill were a married couple from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, who in 1961 claimed to have been abducted by aliens with grayish skin. And it might be something of a side note, but one thing I've always found interesting about the Hills is that they happened to be an interracial married couple in the early 1960s, a time prior to Loving versus Virginia, when the Supreme Court would finally declare so-called anti-miscegenation laws unconstitutional. I admire the courage and integrity it must have taken to defy the status quo at that time, a very tumultuous and racially divided time. This was in the midst of the civil rights era, where interracial couples still face significant social opposition and even outright hostility or threats of violence. Betty was a social worker and Barney worked for the Postal Service. Both were members of the NAACP and were engaged in social activism. Barney actually sat on the local board for the United States Commission on Civil Rights. The abduction incident supposedly began around 10.30 p.m. on September 19, 1961, as the Hills were driving through a rural part of New Hampshire, and being New Hampshire, there's lots of rural parts. And the Hill case is very involved, and you could probably dedicate a whole episode to it. So I'm going to try to read from an article from the Armagh Observatory and Planetarium uh, website, and hopefully that will help give a relatively brief and kind of neat outline of events. I say relatively brief. And I have to admit, it's a rather old article, August 19th, 2011, and so it's entitled The Truth About Betty Hill's UFO Star Map. And once again, this website is the official site of a planetarium or observatory, and as such, their focus is the veracity or accuracy or lack thereof of Betty Hill's star map. But they do a good job of laying out the basics of the overall story as well. And so before the article actually begins, there's kind of a summary and bold text. And here it says, On a dark September night in 1961, Barney and Betty Hill had a frightening experience in the mountains of New Hampshire. Later, they came to believe that they had been captured and studied by beings from another world. During their ordeal on the spaceship, Betty saw a star map said to contain astonishingly accurate astronomical details. We look at what some ufologists see as proof of alien contact. And here's where the article actually begins. On the 19th of September, 1961, Barney, and it gives the uh, birth and death dates, 1922 to 1969, and Betty Hill, 1919 to 20, or to 2004, rather, were returning from a holiday. Middle-aged, the Hills were respectable pillars of the community, living quiet, decent lives. They drove overnight from Montreal, Canada, to Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Their journey took them through the forested and deserted White Mountains of New Hampshire, and I've been to the White Mountains a lot over the years. I'm from neighboring uh, Massachusetts. Both observed a bright light in the sky under the moon. As they drove, both believed it to be following their car. The couple rationalized it as an aircraft or satellite. Barney observed the light through binoculars, revealing it to be an odd-looking flying vehicle, a flying saucer with extensive windows. 
bright lights and variable geometry wings. It was clearly not of this Earth. Interestingly, to the best of my knowledge, no subsequent UFO of similar appearance has been reported. Through the craft's large windows, Barney Hill could see humanoid beings standing as they controlled the craft by manipulating long levers. To Barney's horror, some of these creatures were grinning as they looked right back at him, anxious to escape this ominous presence. The hills drove on at high speed, and then it was dawn and they were nearly home. On their arrival, the couple were puzzled. Their journey seemed to have taken a couple of hours longer than it should have. The Hills were worried by this missing time. More alarming still, they also had a selection of minor cuts, grazes, and clothing damage that they could not remember receiving. Other intriguing-sounding physical evidence claimed by the Hills supporters, such as odd areas of exposed bare metal on their car and strange chemical stains on Betty's clothing, have been lost to history. Frightened, the Hills began to suspect that something very odd had happened to them. In the following months, Betty suffered from severe nightmares of a kidnapping. Betty was interested in UFO stories, and she began to believe that during their journey, she and Barney had been abducted and taken on board a spaceship. Eventually, the Hills sought help, initially from UFO investigators, who it seems leaked the couple's details to the press. The Hills had wanted their experience to remain private. Increasingly distressed, the Hills looked to more professional help. Hypnotized by a distinguished psychiatrist, Dr. Benjamin Simon, both gave detailed accounts of what they believed had happened on their fateful drive. This is the most important points of their story as recorded by Dr. Simon in 1964. The Hills had been forced to stop their car by a landed spaceship and its crew, who compelled their captives to board their vessel. Their kidnappers were small, grayish-colored men, who seemed to be conducting a scientific investigation of Earthlings. After performing a strange, bumbling, but painful and degrading medical examination of the Hills, using technology which seems oddly archaic now, such as the chart recorders the Hill's vital signs were plotted on. The alien's leader showed Betty a star map. The alien who spoke English told her that the map showed trade and exploration routes between stars and that our sun and the alien's home star were marked on it. He pointed out roughly where he and his crew came from. The abducting aliens intended that the Hills would be unable to remember their ordeal, presumably using their advanced technology to block the couple's memories. The dazed Hills were released and allowed to go on their way, while the spaceship disappeared into the dark starry sky. It should be emphasized both that Dr. Simon believed that the Hills were utterly sincere but sharing a delusion, and that Dr. Simon personally believed that he had witnessed UFOs. He in no way matched the stereotype of quote-unquote mean old skeptic. Since then, this basic story has been repeated so often by others. The circumstances are the same. Nighttime abduction by little gray men, bizarre and unpleasant medical tests, release, amnesia of the events followed by nightmares, an eventual total recall under hypnosis, retelling alien abduction reports and circulating rumors of government cover-ups of saucer crashes, have been the meat and drink of ufology since the 1980s. 
actually attempting to observe and analyze UFOs in the sky is a very minor part of ufological studies, it seems, as it is the prototype alien abduction narrative, Barney and Betty's adventure has been hugely influential. It was dramatized for TV in 1975 as the UFO incident, inspiring thousands of flights of fancy in the years that followed. What makes this account more than just another tall tale that many people have copied is the claim that Betty Hill had astronomical knowledge unavailable in 1964. If true, this is truly astonishing, possibly suggesting that the Hill's account really happened. Under hypnosis, Betty was able to redraw the map the alien leader had shown her. Betty was vague about what the map actually showed. Sometimes she referred to it as showing stars and planets. Her sketch was reproduced in books and magazines. In the late 1960s, a teacher called Marjorie Fish, who lived from 1932 to 2013, tried to compare the map with real nearby stars and see if any matched. This would not be an easy task, as there were about a thousand stars within 50 light years of the sun. To make things easier, Fish made a series of sensible assumptions based on how similar to us the alien seemed, suggesting their home planet was very similar to Earth. Based on data that was accurate at the time, she eliminated, and there's a bullet point list here, all non-main sequence stars, habitable planets are unlikely to survive their star's transition to red giant. All variable stars, it is difficult to see how life could arise on their planets because the huge temperature variations, stars of class F4 or higher, these would have much shorter lifetimes than our sun, so less time for life to arise. Multiple star systems where the stars were too close together, stable planetary orbits, seem impossible, M-class red dwarfs, potential planets would be tidally locked, Fish and others assume this would prevent complex life arising, but this is not universally agreed. After this sifting process, which would have eliminated about 90% of the stars in the 50 light year radius, Fish was left with 46 stars. Using data from the 1969 edition of the Gleese, I think it is, catalog of nearby stars, for nearly five years, Fish painstakingly constructed several three-dimensional models of the sun's stellar neighborhood from wire and beads. She viewed these from every possible Possible angle hoping to find a pattern matching the hill map, a long and very difficult process. It is impossible to criticize the effort Fish made. Eventually, she found almost a perfect match. It seemed that the map drawn by Betty Hill accurately depicted the stars near our own. All the stars lay roughly on the same plane, and the aliens apparently came from the Zeta Reticulum system. The viewpoint was from slightly above the star Zeta II Reticuli. And so now it's talking about a pair of G-type stars... This pair of G-type stars is only 39.5 light-years away in the small and unimpressive constellation of Reticulum, in parentheses the net, a binary system. The two stars are at least about 0.06 light-years apart, far enough a separation for each to have its own planetary system. 
From the planets of one star, the other star would be a brilliantly bright star, about as 30 times as bright as Venus looks in the Earth's sky. It was not clear which of the pair was the alien's home star. No planets have yet been discovered around either star. And there's a quote here from Marjorie Fish herself, Since we did not have the data to make such a map in 1961, when Betty saw it, or in 1964 when she drew it, it could not be a hoax, since the stars with lines to them are such a select group, it is almost impossible that the resemblance between Betty's map and reality could be coincidental. Betty's map could only have been drawn after contact with extraterrestrials. And it continues, alas, it is probably more complicated than that. Based on obsolete data, Marjorie Fish's interpretation of Betty Hill's map has been shown to be wrong. In the early 1990s, the European Hipparchos High Precision Parallax Collecting Satellite Mission measured the distances to more than 100,000 stars around the sun more accurately than ever before. Some turned out to be much further away than previously thought. Other research has looked at stars included in Fish's research, and it looks like it's saying two in particular, 54 and 107 Piscium, have been revealed to be variable stars, while Gliese, I think it is, 67, and Tau Wan, Eridani, are in fact close binaries. Then some stars discounted by fish have turned out to be potential abodes for life after all. For example, Epsilon Eridani is not after all a binary star. Using fish's own assumptions and more up-to-date data, six of the 15 stars chosen by her must be excluded. And I know I've been reading from this article for a while now, and I hope people's eyes aren't glazing over. Please bear with me a, a while longer. So it continues... Uh, the fish interpretation falls to pieces at this point. At some point, fish herself confirmed this. And then I'll jump down a bit. Remember, it was drawn from memory, so any, it's regarding Betty Hill's map, so any correlation with the real stars is almost certainly the result of chance. The idea that this correlation can be tested and found to be accurate to so many thousand decimal places is fantasy. I have never understood why it has ever been taken seriously, being based on what seemed to me several big assumptions. For the map to be real, we have to accept the following. And here's some bullet points. Hypnosis is a real mental state which enables quote-unquote lost memories to be recovered. To me, it appears a kind of role-playing game played by subject and hypnotist. Another bullet point, a hypnotized individual has perfect memory recall of what they have seen. Note, for example, that Barney and Betty's accounts under hypnosis disagreed about major details, especially in their descriptions of the aliens. Betty said they were hairless and wore gray or blue jackets with zippers and trousers, while Barney, I don't know why it cracks me up, while Barney said that they did have hair on their head and wore shiny black uniforms with peaked caps which he compared to Nazi uniforms, little gray space Nazis. It is interesting, too, that over the decades, Betty's story changed, dropping elements which later seemed silly, like her alien's original bulbous Jimmy Durante noses. And now I'm just picturing them looking like those, uh, those ridiculous proboscis monkeys. Have you ever seen those? The monkeys with the giant pickle noses. 
And here's another bullet point. An individual can reproduce from memory dots on a map with accuracy down to the millimeter. Does anyone know how often Betty redrew the map? Was each copy identical? Note that Betty Hill herself appears to have been unsure just how accurate her drawing was. She wrote, and here's a quote, as for the eight background stars, I really do not know if they exist and in that position, or if I added them to try to show that other stars were seen on the sky map in the background. I know I added them to show that stars were in the background. However, as to their position on the original sky map, I'm not sure. I know I have a bad habit when it comes to working on the podcast. I think sometimes I include more information than I need to, so I apologize if it got a bit boring in the middle there, you know, reading the article. Maybe I included too much of the, um, the astronomy-related jargon and whatnot and got a bit into the weeds. The only information I probably really needed was the layout of the original story of the abduction, and then I think this last part, which points out the flaws with the star map and the fact that Betty and Barney had differing descriptions of the aliens. Uh, so I apologize if things got a bit boring or long-winded there, but uh, let's continue. We're done with that article now. But I should also quickly mention that because of that supposed connection between Betty and Barney Hill's experience in Zeta Reticuli. Their abduction is sometimes referred to as the Zeta Reticuli incident, and the Greys themselves are sometimes referred to as Zeta Reticulans. But as far as my thoughts on the Betty and Barney Hill abduction story, uh, I think it's a really interesting case. They seem to have been principled people, very active in their community. And if we can believe the claim that apparently they wanted their story to remain private, which, you know, if true would suggest that they didn't make the story up for attention. The thing that sets alarm bells off for me is the fact that the bulk of the story is based on recovered quote-unquote memories gained through hypnosis. Not that long ago, I mentioned the recovered memory phenomenon related to the satanic ritual abuse hysteria of the 1980s, a part of the so-called satanic panic. You had this trend of therapists trying to help patients recover traumatic memories they had supposedly repressed. And so while under a kind of uh, hypnosis or regression, patients came up with all sorts of lurid stories about how they had been abused by satanic cults, etc., sometimes abused by members of their own families, turned out to be uh, a bunch of BS. And a lot of innocent people were accused or even convicted of crimes they had never committed. I believe I characterized it as a kind of modern equivalent of the Salem witch trials hysteria. So I'm very skeptical of evidence garnered under hypnosis. And there's also the fact that Barney and Betty's description of the aliens don't match up. Uh, I should clarify that I don't think Betty and Barney, nor the satanic ritual abuse accusers, were lying. It's not their honesty, I doubt, but rather the quality of so-called evidence garnered or gathered under hypnosis. But if Barney and Betty were as trustworthy as their reputations would suggest, it makes you wonder what did happen, because according to them, they did experience some kind of lost time, and there was evidence that they had been through something. 
And this is interesting, and it brings us back to the possible influence of pop culture or science fiction. Some have suggested that Barney's description and drawing, did I say that funny? Drawing? Drawing. Of what the aliens looked like, uh, garnered while under hypnosis, may have been influenced by images from contemporary science fiction. There was an episode of The Outer Limits called the Bolero Shield, I believe, that featured aliens that looked something like the typical description of a gray. The episode aired February 10th, 1964. The hypnosis session in which Barney described the aliens took place February 22nd of the same year, so just 12 days after the episode aired. Carl Sagan, in his book The Demon Haunted World, instead suggested the 1963 film Invader from Mars as a possible influence, which also features a type of alien with a large bald head. Following the notoriety of the Hill case, reports of alleged encounters with grey-type aliens became more common, according to the late journalist C.D.B. Bryant, author of the 1995 book Close Encounters of the Fourth Kind, Alien Abductions, UFOs, and the Conference at MIT. At the time of his writing, 73% of those who had reported having experienced an alien encounter in the U.S. claimed encountering greys specifically, contrasted with 48% in continental Europe and 12% in the United Kingdom. And also similarly to Betty and Barney Hill's experience, as I believe that Observatory article touched on in passing, many alleged abductees report their abduction experience as having been harrowing and traumatic, involving a sense of being violated and subjected to various uncomfortable or painful experiments and procedures. Often they'll report being subjected to the stare of one of the greys, their large dark eyes coldly staring down into their own, as if they're probing their mind or attempting to communicate telepathically. And this brings me to one of the stranger potential explanations for the prevalence of the gray alien concept that I encountered while researching this episode or doing research for this episode. It's been referred to as the mother hypothesis. The idea is that the continents of the archetypal gray alien might represent a kind of prototypical female face that we're naturally wired to respond to. I'll read a bit from a Washington Post article entitled uh, comedically, Your Mama Looks Like E.T., and so it starts out, accounts of people who claim to have been abducted by aliens have one eerie similarity. When serious researchers like psychologist Frederick V. Malmstrom, I believe it is, have asked self-proclaimed abductees what their out-of-this-world kidnappers looked like, they inevitably describe beings with large heads, big eyes, gray skin, smooth features, a barely visible or absent mouth, and smallish bodies. And I should stop to say that, as we already discussed, a simple explanation why the classic or stereotypical gray alien concept or image is so prevalent is because it can be traced back to early science fiction, and it's an idea that has just made its way into popular imagination. 
But I'll continue. Malmstrom, a visiting scholar at the U.S. Air Force Academy, now thinks he recognizes that face. It's mommy, or at least the image of a quote-unquote prototypical female face that's hardwired into a baby's brain and helps newborns instantly respond to their mothers. Scientists have known for years that animals are born with certain visual recognition templates that help them survive. In one famous study, a scientist found that newly hatched chickens automatically cowered from shadows in the shape of a predator, such as a hawk, while the shadow of a non-predator, a goose, elicited only yawns, or the chick equivalent. There's similar evidence that human babies are programmed to react to a generalized face. Studies show that up until two months of age, an infant will react favorably to anything resembling a human face, even a Halloween mask. Does it depend on how scary the mask is? While showing little consistent interest in other shapes. The key researchers have concluded is the eyes and nose. A newborn's blurry vision tends to soften facial features and smudge the eyes into large, dark blobs. In fact, when Malmstrom optically altered a photo of a woman in a way consistent with the characteristics of a newborn's vision, astigmatism, an extremely shallow focal plane, the resulting face looked remarkably like those big-eyed aliens drawn by self-declared abductees. He reports in the latest issue of the magazine Skeptic, which features scholarly articles on the paranormal and other extraordinary claims, and I think it's Michael Shermer behind Skeptic magazine, right? But the article goes on for quite some time, so I'll just stop reading there. I just wanted to give you guys a basic gist of the hypothesis. And I think it's a very intriguing or thought-provoking idea, but I'm not a researcher or a scientist, so I don't know how valid or accurate it is, but uh, yeah, kind of wild. And I mentioned the traumatic nature of many abduction stories, and because alleged abductions usually take place at night, Some scientists or researchers have proposed that they might be the product of sleep paralysis or night terrors. I myself am especially susceptible to bouts of sleep paralysis, and although it's a fairly common feature, I've never personally experienced the component where people will sense or see a presence while frozen in bed, but it could help explain abduction reports where people claim to witness an alien intruder in their room. I'll read a bit from this New York Times article, and as I read through these articles, I'll try not to bore you guys to death, and I'll try to read only as much as necessary and cut the articles short if I can. And strangely, for some reason, the article suddenly got paywalled on my iPad, but it's still available online, knock on wood, strange thing for a skeptic to say. Anyway, so it's entitled Alien Abduction, Science Calls It Sleep Paralysis, and it's by Nicholas D. Kristoff, and that sounds really familiar. Is he a a contributor who does kind of cable news, the cable news rounds? Anyway, it starts off. About once a week, Jean-Christophe Terillion, 
perhaps wakes up and senses the presence of a threatening evil being beside his bed. Terror ripples through him and he tries to move or call out, but he is paralyzed, unable to raise an arm or make a sound. His ears ring, a weight presses down on his chest and he has to struggle for breath. And here's a quote, I feel an intense pressure in my head, as if it's going to explode, said Mr. Terillion, a Canadian physicist doing research in Japan. Sometimes he finds himself transported upward and looking down on his body, or else sent hurtling through a long tunnel, and these episodes are terrifying even for a scientist like him, who does not believe that evil spirits go around haunting people. Called sleep paralysis, this disorder, the result of a disconnect between brain and body as a person is on the fringe of sleep is turning out to be increasingly common, affecting nearly half of all people at least once. Moreover, a growing number of scholars believe that sleep paralysis may help explain many ancient reports of attacks by witches and modern claims of abduction by space aliens. And here's another quote, I think it can explain claims of witchcraft and alien abduction, said Kazahiku Fukuda, or Fukuda I think it is, a psychologist at Fukushima University in Japan, and a leading expert on sleep paralysis. Research in Japan has had a head start because sleep paralysis is well known to most Japanese, who call it Kanashibari while it is little known and less studied in the West, and here's a quote once again, we have a framework for it, but in North America, there's no concept for people to understand what has happened to them, Professor Fukuda said. So if Americans have the experience, and if they have heard of alien abductions, then they may think, aha, it's alien abduction. Sleep paralysis was once thought to be very rare, but recent studies in Canada, Japan, China, and the United States have suggested that it may strike at least 40% or 50% of all people at least once, and a new study in Newfoundland, Canada, found that more than 60% had experienced it. Sleep paralysis seems to have been described since ancient times, and an episode appears in Moby Dick and perhaps also in the 18th century Henry Fuseli painting, The Nightmare, which I'm very familiar with. It's actually one of my favorite paintings of all time, and I think there's various versions of it. I used to have the image as uh, my Facebook uh, cover photo. I just seem to pause there because I've never been sure exactly how to pronounce the artist's name. Henry Fuseli, I think it is, which shows a goblin sitting on the stomach of a sleeping woman. And also there's um, a spectral horse's head coming through the curtains uh, behind or above the bed. What is striking is that although the symptoms of sleep paralysis are generally very similar, the images and the hallucinations and the interpretation of them seem to vary. But I'll stop there because once again, I don't want to make your eyes glaze over by subjecting you to uh, a series of news articles in their entirety. But yeah, as I alluded to, I've been wrestling with sleep paralysis since uh, as long as I can remember, really. It's like you're trapped between sleeping and uh, being awake. You begin to regain consciousness, but your body is your body goes into like a paralytic state so you don't harm yourself while sleeping by flailing around acting out your dreams. That's the theory at least. 
And so something can go wrong where you're, you begin to regain consciousness, but your body, your muscles are still frozen. And it can be very disconcerting. It almost feels like you're buried alive or encased in lead. Uh, and you have to kind of fight your way to become fully awake and in control of your body again. And it's interesting that the article states twice, I believe, that scientists now think it's relatively a relatively common phenomenon. I went to see a neurologist about my migraines probably about three years ago and also told her in passing that I uh, suffer from sleep paralysis. And she acted like she thought it was very strange, like it's a very rare occurrence, which I thought was odd. And I found personally that for whatever reason, antidepressants, which I take for both migraines and depression, they seem to help, at least SSRIs, they seem to help with the sleep paralysis too. And I thought I read an article once that proposed that serotonin or some kind of chemical imbalance may play a role in sleep paralysis. And that's why certain antidepressants may help alleviate the condition or lessen the episodes. I just thought I'd throw that out there for anyone else who is maybe wrestling with the same thing. But I don't want to make this about me and my medical problems, so let's get back onto the topic of aliens. And so no show about greys or aliens would be complete without at least a mention of Roswell. And the full story of the Roswell incident is so involved and has so many different parts that you could easily dedicate a whole show to it on its own. But once again, this episode isn't meant to be a super deep dive, famous last words. So I'll do my best to offer a relatively brief rundown by reading from this article on the subject from Smithsonian Magazine. And once again, I'll only try to read as much as necessary so I don't bore you guys to death. And so it's entitled, In 1947, a high-altitude balloon crash-landed in Roswell. The aliens never left. And here's a subheading. Despite its persistence in popular culture, extraterrestrial life owes more to the imagination than reality. And once again, personally, I believe there most likely is life elsewhere in the universe, and that's probably the scientific consensus at this point. But whether or not we've actually been visited, that's another question. And although I'm skeptical, I try to remain open-minded, I think it would be incredibly exciting if uh, someone could prove that we definitely have been visited. But, uh, so I'll continue with the article. In Roswell, New Mexico, exactly seven decades ago this month, the first little green men arrived. And this article, just for context, was written in 2017. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's start closer to the beginning. On June 14, 1947, a rancher named W.W. Mack Brazel and his son Vernon were driving across their ranch land some 80 miles northwest of Roswell when they encountered something they'd never seen before. It was, in Brazel's words, and here's a quote, a large area of bright wreckage made up of rubber strips, tinfoil, and rather tough paper and sticks. The metallic-looking lightweight fabric was scattered, shredded across the gravel and sagebrush of the New Mexico desert. 
Brazel or Brazel, not to be confused with Brazzers, didn't know what to do with the newfound items or how they had landed on the property. So on July 4th, he collected all the mysterious wreckage he could find. On July 7th, he drove it all to Roswell, delivering the goods to Sheriff George Wilcox. Wilcox, too, was confounded. Seeking answers, he contacted Colonel Butch Blanchard, everyone had a nickname back then, commander of Roswell Army Airfield's 409th or 409th Composite Group, located just outside of town. Blanchard was stymied. Working in his way up the chain of command, he decided to contact his superior, General Roger W. Ramey, commander of the 8th Air Force in Fort Worth, Texas. Blanchard also sent Major Jesse Marcel, an intelligence officer from the base, to investigate more thoroughly. Accompanied by the sheriff and Brazel, or Brazel, Marcel returned to the site and collected all the quote-unquote wreckage as they tried to ascertain what the materials were. Marcel chose to make a public statement. On July 8th, Marcel's comments ran in the local afternoon newspaper, the Roswell Daily Record, alongside a headline stating, RAAF captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell. The body of the story contained a dramatic, memorable sentence. The Intelligence Office of the 509th or 509th Bombardment Group at Roswell Army Airfield announced at noon today that the field has come into the possession of a flying saucer. And here's a quote, apparently it was better from the Air Force's perspective that there was a crashed alien spacecraft out there than to tell the truth, says Roger Linnaeus or Lanius the recently retired curator of space history at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Here's another quote. A flying saucer was easier to admit than Project Mogul. Linnaeus, or Linnaeus, adds a chuckle in his voice, and with that we were off to the races. And so Project Mogul was apparently, and I believe the article goes into all this, but it's a very long article, it was apparently this government project where they launched a bunch of weather balloons equipped to detect, or at least that was the hope, Soviet nuclear testing activity because this was at the beginning of the Cold War. And they didn't want anyone, especially the Russians, to know about it. And so the story is that one of these crashed in Roswell. And according to this article and other sources, the government was happier with people thinking it was a flying saucer than knowing the truth that they were trying to spy on the Soviets to um, ascertain whether or not they were conducting nuclear uh, testing. And I should add that this was also the time of a kind of flying saucer craze that really took off, no pun intended. And I'll read a bit more from the article. On June 21st, Navy seaman Harold Dahl claimed to have seen six unidentified flying objects in the sky near Maury Island in Washington State's Puget Sound. The next morning, Dahl said he was sought out and debriefed by quote-unquote men in black. Three days after the Dahl sighting, an amateur pilot named Kenneth Arnold said he had spotted a flying saucer in the sky by Mount Rainier, Washington. 
And here's a quote. UFOs aren't unusual, Linnaeus or Linnaeus says. They're simply unidentified things you see in the sky. We've all probably seen them. And if you look long enough, you'll probably eventually figure out what it is you're looking at. It's not extraterrestrials. By the end of 1947, mass hysteria had seized the global mindset, with more than 300 alleged flying saucer sightings in the last six months of that year alone. Not that there was ever any credible evidence to support the sightings, Linnaeus or Linnaeus adds. By early July 1947, Brazel or Brazel had heard tales of flying saucers in the Pacific Northwest. These sightings spurred him to show his discovery to the authorities. But just one day after the Air Force announced it had come into possession of a flying saucer, Roswell's morning newspaper debunked the story. A published statement from the War Department in Washington claimed the debris collected on Brazel's ranch was the remains of a weather balloon, and the Roswell Dispatch's morning headline, Army Debunks Roswell Flying Disc as World Simmers with Excitement, set the tale to rest on July 9th. But we need to back it up here, says Linnaeus. What was really going on was something called Project Mogul. So once again, the government line seems to be that a flying saucer was a more convenient explanation for them than the truth, because they didn't want the Soviets to know what they were up to. Whether or not you as an individual buy that explanation is up to you, or whether you think there's some kind of cover-up. Well, the interesting thing is, it looks like either way there was a cover-up, because if it really was just Project Mogul, then they were using the UFO story, the cover-up, they're spying on the Soviets, etc. But on the other hand, if there really was UFO activity, specifically when it crash-landed in Roswell, New Mexico, and they used the Project Mogul story to cover up that, then that's a cover-up too. So once again, cover-up either way. Me as a skeptic, I think it probably is more plausible that it was just a crash-landed weather balloon. But also as someone who realizes you shouldn't just blindly trust the government, uh, I can't completely rule out that there may not have been some kind of cover-up of some kind of strange UFO activity. Once again, I'm skeptical, but I try to remain open-minded, and uh, I wasn't there, so I don't want to say with 100% certainty I know what did or didn't happen. So now that we've discussed Roswell, I think it only makes sense to move on to something that's long been etched in my mind since I first saw it back in the day, the so-called alien autopsy video. Back in 1995, a London-based entrepreneur by the name of Ray Santilli, I think it is, released a 17-minute long black-and-white video of a gray alien supposedly recovered from Roswell being autopsied by the U.S. military. Santilli claimed to have received the video from a retired military cameraman. Fox, not Fox News to be clear, same parent company though, I believe, turned it into a TV special hosted by Star Trek's Jonathan Frakes, who I really like, and I've noticed he's very active on Twitter nowadays, or X. The special was entitled Alien Autopsy, Fact or Fiction, and it was originally aired once again by Fox on August 28th of 1995. There was quite a buzz surrounding it, and I remember watching it and being perhaps 
a bit skeptical, and yet at the same time, it seemed convincing enough that I also found myself wondering if it, you know, if it could actually be real. In retrospect, I personally doubt its authenticity based on what we now know about Ray Santilli and the fact that most of the people involved have come forward and admitted it was a hoax. Santilli himself changed his story, claiming that the film he released was actually a reconstruction or reenactment based on a real film that had become too degraded to use. But he added that his film did supposedly still contain a small portion of the original footage. Santilli still maintains there is an original 1947 film and that it's authentic. He claims Kodak analyzed the film and confirmed its date, but he's refused requests to have it submitted for review. In 2006, he made the claim that sections of the original film had been restored, and yet he still hasn't re-released it. Personally, even when I review it now, and you can find the whole special on YouTube, it's interesting. It kind of straddles that line. To the eye, it kind of looks like it could be real. You see the body of a typical gray on a medical table. It's intact except for a gruesome wound on its right leg. And the wound in the autopsy gore, for lack of a less extreme term, uh, the way the skin and layers are cut and pulled aside to reveal the organs and viscera looks fairly convincing. Yet at the same time, you're like, I could see this just being a latex dummy, you know? It's strange. I think the fact that it's in black and white and that the film is made to look a bit aged or grainy probably helps hide or obscure any flaws in the, uh, the effects and lend them a more convincing look. But if you're interested, I'd suggest going to YouTube and checking it out for yourself. As I said, you can find the special hosted by Jonathan Frakes and its entirety there. And you can also find various clips, etc. Next, I want to discuss or touch on the 1987 New York Times bestseller, Communion, by Whitley Stryber. To be honest, the only reason I'm really bringing it up is because of the cover. The book cover features a very striking depiction of a stereotypical gray alien. It's considered one of the most iconic and recognizable images of a gray there is. I remember it had quite an impact on me as a kid. As an adult, I love horror and sci-fi, that kind of thing. But when I was young, it could be, you know, I could be easily spooked by things like horror movies or freaky imagery. And I remember the book cover, which seemed to be everywhere or ubiquitous uh, at the time, did spook me a bit. But now, once again, I think it's, uh, as an adult, I think it's a really impressive piece of artwork. And I understand why it's so iconic. And it should be noted that unlike Stryber's previous books, which were considered fiction, Communion was presented as nonfiction, and it supposedly details Stryber's alien encounters. Like The Hills, Stryber had experienced lost time, as well as disturbing flashbacks. An author-slash-ufologist by the name of Bud Hopkins helped Stryber recover supposed suppressed memories of interactions with alien beings through, yep, hypnosis. Interestingly, Stryber discusses being awoken at night by paranoid dreams and the sense that someone else was in the room, which brings the sleep paralysis hypothesis we discussed earlier to mind. 
A couple of years after the book's publication, a film adaptation was released starring Christopher Walken as Whitley Schreiber. And I didn't mention it while I was talking about Roswell, but I want to bring up Majestic 12, at least in passing. Majestic 12 is a supposed secret government organization or committee formed by President Truman in 1947 and tasked with investigating and recovering alien spacecraft. According to some ufologists or conspiracy theorists, Majestic 12 was responsible for covering up the Roswell incident. And I believe the late ufologist Stanton Friedman, who I remember seeing all over TV when I was younger, he was often interviewed for UFO documentaries, etc. I think he believed in Majestic 12, that it was a real organization or committee, and he claimed to have documents, some of dubious authenticity, some have claimed, um, if I'm not mistaken. And I don't say that to bash Stanton Friedman, I always enjoyed watching him, and he seemed like a nice guy. He himself may have very well thought the documents were authentic, even if they weren't, but he claimed to have been in possession of documents relating to Majestic 12 supposed activities. But to finally come around full circle, yes, I do believe there most likely is life elsewhere in the universe, but once again, I'm skeptical, yet try to remain open-minded to the idea that we've actually been visited. That being said, I'm glad there's organizations like the SETI Institute out there, and we should continue the search for extraterrestrial life or intelligence. And regarding, again, the question of whether or not we've been visited, even though I'm skeptical, I think sightings, abduction, and close encounter claims merit serious investigation. And I'm glad that we've long had people pushing for the release of government documents pertaining to this kind of phenomena. If there is any actual evidence of alien activity, I think people deserve to know. But thanks again to that specific YouTube viewer for recommending this topic. I uh, actually enjoyed researching this episode and putting it together. Ended up being far lengthier than I had planned. I think two or three times I said this wasn't going to be a deep dive, and yet we're well over the one-hour mark at this point. And I hope everyone enjoyed it, whether you're a skeptic or a believer. And you guys know the drill. You can like the Weekend Out Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter or X, even though I'm not on there much. Um, if you'd like to support, the, yeah, you can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. I forgot my own shameless plugging. Uh, routine. And uh, if you'd like to support the show monetarily, which is always greatly appreciated, kind of in financial dire straits, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash the weekend out and helping the show out for as little as, you know, 99 cents a month. And I always forget to mention, but for a while now, YouTube has had a super thanks option. It's kind of like an offline version of a super chat, which is a feature people will use to monetarily thank or reward streamers during live streams. So if you're watching one of my videos and you're enjoying it and you can afford to do so, you can click on the super thanks button and, you know, make a small donation that way if you desire to do so. All right, brothers and sisters, thank you so much for listening or watching as always. And until next time. And to quote the Simpsons, good night and keep watching the skis. <clears throat> that was cringy.